Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is engineer and mixer Andrew Sheps. First of all, there's a movement afoot to change the name of rock to something else. And you might wonder, well, why? Rock has been fading in popularity for quite some time and is probably at its lowest ebb and maybe since it started. So some in the genre think that perhaps changing the name might really help. It probably won't. And the reason why is this has been tried before, but with jazz. Just recently, there's been some talk about trying to change the name of jazz to something else, and they were trying to rename it BAM, B-A-M, for Black American Music. The real problem with that is, well, where does soul music and spirituals and R&B and hip-hop and even jazz from the rest of the world fit into that name? So obviously, it's not the catch-all that everyone thought it might be. The movement to rebrand jazz, though, actually goes way back to the 1940s. In 1949, Downbeat Magazine, which is the heartbeat of jazz, held a contest, and they were going to pay $1,000 for the best name for jazz in order to, again, rebrand it. This is worth about $10,000 if it were held today. Now, you have to understand that big band music was the most popular kind of music in the 30s and 40s, but by the end of the 1940s, it was already fading. So the whole idea was, just like you're hearing today, in order to help this kind of music regain its popularity, maybe we should change the name. So some of the names that they got included Schmoozik and Jarb, J-A-R-B, Blip and Mop. (laughs) Guess what? The winner was called Crew Cut. Crew cut, yes, like the haircut. And believe it or not, the haircut came from rowing. And it was the haircut that rowers used because it reduced air resistance so they can go faster. Well, the fact of the matter is, crew cut never caught on. And I bet until now, you've probably never even heard the term as applied to jazz music. That's exactly the same thing that would happen if rock were to change its name. So don't expect that to happen anytime soon. This has been tried before, and it's not going to happen. We have to live with the names that we have. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated. It includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted rate at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. Now, I know you're going to be heartbroken when you hear this next news item. There may be no more Elvis weddings in Las Vegas. Yeah, for the longest time, getting married by Elvis in Las Vegas was a trope. It was actually something that everybody talked about, laughed about. There have been television shows built around it. And it still happens so much that some people have to plan their weddings like five years out, believe it or not. Well, this might actually go away because a company called Authentic Brands Group, or ABG, wants to stop it because the image and likeness of Elvis is not licensed. 
So what they did is they sent a cease and desist letter to all of the Vegas chapels that have this feature. Now, it sounds like a funny thing, and it is, but the fact of the matter is there are some serious copyright questions that lie underneath of all this. So one big one is Elvis died 45 years ago, and no one has objected since then. So it can be argued that the trademark was abandoned. So that's one thing, and it'll take a court case to figure that out. Another thing is, does this even include people dressing up like Elvis to go to a party? We don't know to the extent that this will be enforced. But there's a financial and a legacy question here that maybe even the company, ABG, is not even considering. So for instance, why end a tradition that keeps Elvis in the public consciousness? They want to protect Elvis's brand, but all they're doing is scrubbing him from the public consciousness. And as a result, his whole brand, his whole idea, his whole memory could die. One of the things that's keeping it going are things like the Elvis weddings in Las Vegas. So you have to wonder, sometimes what seems to be the right thing to do legally may not be the right thing to do both ethically and strategically. Let's keep those Elvis weddings going. My guest this week is Andrew Sheps, who's won three Grammy Awards and has mixed huge hits for Adele, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Metallica, Beyonce, Jay-Z, U2, and many more. Andrew has also spent quite a lot of time mixing in Dolby Atmos lately, and his tutorials on the subject are some of the best available. He's also spent a lot of time working on audio apps and plugins, creating his Shep 73 EQ and Parallel Particles in collaboration with Waves, and most recently, his own Bounce Factory. Bounce Factory is an extension of Pro Tools that allows you to automate every aspect of the bouncing process in order to escape the drudgery of exporting alternate mixes and stems. During the interview, we talked about the consumer adoption of Atmos, the origins of Bounce Factory, how his mixing has evolved, using less parallel compression, and much more. I spoke with Andrew via Zoom from his studio in the UK. We've talked a little bit about this before, but you're really heavily into Atmos mixing. And I assume that's because that you had a lot of work offered to you. And there wasn't a lot of people that were doing it for a while, at least music mixing. Yeah, I mean, now everybody's doing it, which is great. I mean, it really is to the point where almost everyone I talk to is figuring out a way to set up in their rooms for it. But it's I've just always been fascinated with both the just tech. I love tech. And that's like it's a complicated system and getting that up and running. And I love the idea of object based panning instead of channel based. Like it really appeals to me. But then also, like most mixers, I've spent my entire career trying to make stuff sound like it's coming from outside the speakers or above or behind or whatever. And, you know, from Q sound to the pan scan to all the stuff that had this little bits of spatial processing built in um, to all of a sudden go to a system that was actually speakers like that. It was just something I was really, really into from the very beginning. And I didn't start off with a huge amount of work. I mean, I was, I was hopeful, you know, that I'm in a, position in my career that I could generate some, and I've been pretty lucky. Um, it's still not, not even half of what I do. And the weird part, the really weird part is I'm either getting the gig to do Atmos versions of someone else's stereo mixes, 
or stereo mixes where they don't want Atmos. I have almost never done both formats on projects. That is weird. Okay, so the million dollar question on this is consumer adoption. And we both lived through the 5.1 days where the industry was really hot and heavy over it, but consumers not so much. Yeah. The thing about it now, it's different because you have Bluetooth speakers, so you don't have to worry about the problem of cabling. You have even self-aligning speakers, uh, sound bars that are really good, everything like that. So how do you see that shaking out? Well, I think the, the biggest difference is the difference in the core technology where 5.1 is a channel-based format. So you have to have at least five speakers and you probably should have the subwoofer. Otherwise you can't listen to it, period. It's impossible. If you have four speakers, you have to decide, well, which channel am I not going to listen to, right? Yeah. There's no other way to do it. Whereas Atmos is inherently object-based. Therefore, if you only have one speaker, it will very happily downmix it down to mono for you. It has coefficients and it does that. So as you add speakers, things get combined less and it plays back more like I'm hearing it with physical speakers around me and four speakers above me. But because it is object-based, that's the first thing. Like you can start off with just a sound bar that does left, center, right. And then if you've got a Sonos one, you can add two speakers in the back and a sub and you can have five one. And it's not the cheapest thing in the world, but it takes, as you say, zero setup. It aligns itself and you've got five one and it sounds really good. I mean, that's what we've got hooked up to our TV. And it's amazing. We've had that for a few years. There are more and more uh, consumer receivers starting to have it. They're still on the pricey end of things, but uh, Marantz and JBL, and um, there are a couple other companies making it where you can just go HDMI in and it's got the Atmos decoder and it will output up to 16 channels. And then it's just up to you to have the speakers or whatever. But the fact that you can have as few speakers as one that's pretending to throw stuff around the room or 16, and you will ostensibly still be able to hear the mix is the difference. And then there's obviously the fact that there is a headphone version of it, that they're, and they're competing versions, but there are two very viable headphone versions of the Atmos mix that are generated from the Atmos mix. You don't have to do it separately. So there's one master, which is that ADM, very large wave file. I mean, it can be gigantic, but from there you can generate on the fly every single format that anybody might ever listen to this Atmos mix in, and it will play back. Now, how effective is it in headphones? Different people think different things. How effective is it on just a sound bar? Well, you know, it's not going to be as effective as if you have speakers behind you, but it will work and it will play back. And it's not going to be like 5.1 where you wouldn't hear the background vocals. So that's my take on it. And it's getting better and better. And I think consumers are starting to kind of dig it and get into it. And what I'm hoping for is that they don't stick on the headphone thing and say, that's cool. They'll actually be pushing for home theater equipment that's easy to set up that actually gets some speakers behind them and above them. I was sitting in the doctor's office the other day, a dentist's office, and I was listening to a sports talk show. And I heard someone call my name. I turned my head. And all of a sudden, the voice was over here, the commentator. Yeah. And I put my head down, and he was on top of my head. And I'm thinking, oh, that's unexpected for a talk show. 
Does this really work? Yeah. Yeah. The head tracking thing, it's it's interesting. If you watch something like on your iPad with the head tracking, I've done it and I have multiple times had to take the headphones off. Like, wait, am I blasting it in the room somehow? <laughs> and like the iPad doesn't even get that loud, but it really does sound like speakers when you have the visual to give you a centering. And it does work without the visual to the point where those little head movements can really help you sort of localize things outside of where they would normally sound like in the headphones. And of course, that's the Apple head tracking version of it. And then there's the other version, which is based more mostly on the head transfer function, where there's no head tracking, but it's all based on the different arrival times and phase relationships between your ears. And that's uh, the straight Dolby binaural, and that's some of the other services. And I think really the best thing is a combination of the two. Um, but the head tracking, when it's just audio, it's still, it's early days. You know, it's it's the infancy of this thing. And I think the fact that it works at all is pretty cool. So hopefully it'll just keep getting better and better. My analogy, when people really complain about like what it sounds like when they're listening to stuff on Apple Music or something like that, is it's like when MP3 encoders first came out. And they were horrendous. And it wasn't just because they were low bit rate. They just were really bad at converting stuff. And they got better and better to the point where now, if you've got a 256K AAC file, it's really hard to tell the difference between that and the 44124 bit master it was made from. It's almost impossible. 10, 15 years ago, not the case at all. You could pick it out blindfolded. You wouldn't even have to hear them back to back. You could just play somebody something. Yep, that's an MP3. It was that obvious. And I think we're at that very early stage in the headphone encoders. They're just starting to figure out what, what works. Let's talk about Bounce Factory. All right. I assume that that came about thanks to Atmos. It kind of did because of having to bounce so many more stems. But it actually started pre-Atmos just having to bounce... Because the way I work is I'm always mixing the whole album at once. So I don't mix a song and then print the five versions of that song. Let's say I don't have to do stems. And then I move on to the next song. I finish a 12-song record, and now all of a sudden I've got 60 mixes I've got to print. Mm. So even without stems, that was enough that as soon as I discovered Soundflow, which is the platform I've written Bounce Factory on, and it's a it's an automation platform that can script Pro Tools and has very deep hooks into Pro Tools, as soon as I discovered that, I was trying to figure out how do I automate bouncing? And okay, now I figured out how to automate bouncing one mix. How could I automate bouncing like the five versions of this? And then over two years, it just ballooned into this app. And now that I'm bouncing stems for Atmos, even if I'm doing the Atmos mix, I want at least 30 stems out of most songs. I want stuff that split up. And I don't want to work from the mix itself. I thought that that would be cool. And I spent weeks making my template sort of surround version of it. And it sucks. It's just unwieldy and it doesn't really work. And there are too many things that go wrong. And all of a sudden, sonically, something sounds totally different and the groove changes. So yeah, now with stems, without Bounce Factory, I would be hating life. Absolutely hating it. Well, that's why a lot of mixers have assistants. <laughs> I was like, hey, yes. go do this. It's true. It's true. And I mean, the way the way I describe it to, to people is like, there's a lot of stuff you can do when you're automating your workflow where you've got these very short repetitive tasks that are sort of 
peppered in with the creative stuff you're doing. And those like, okay, it helps you stay creative and it helps you work a little bit faster, but you're still there working. Bouncing mixes, if you have an app that can do it, it's exactly like having someone walk in and say, hey, what do you need to do? Cool, I got to go home. And that's, that is what this app is. It will open and close sessions. It'll bounce as many versions of the session as you want. It'll solo tracks, it'll mute tracks, it'll change plugins if you got to bounce things without the limiter. Like all the stuff that you would have to sit there in front of the computer being really, really meticulous and then waiting for the bounce to finish so you could be really meticulous again and do the next one and not screw up. That's what it does. And yeah, I suppose you could have an assistant, but my studio is in my house and there's been a plague. You know, it really rules it out. And I did have people who would help me out bouncing um, where I would set them up. They had all the extra authorizations for my plugins. and But there are just too many decisions you got to make. Like, oh, should I melt out the reverb or should I bounce these things separately? Like, you know, yeah. it, it just, there are too many things per song that I need to get my hands on while figuring out what I want to bounce. And so once I've done that, then this thing just goes ahead and bounces for me, which is nice. I mean, it's pretty amazing that it can get so granular. Well, it just came from, it started off kind of dumb and, and it was very tailored to my workflow. So it knew about some things in my template. So it could know that there were certain VCAs to mute for the instrumental mix and solo for the acapella mix and things like that. But then I would have a session that I mixed differently for some reason, just like I didn't want to bring my template in. I just wanted to mix what was there and, and then all of a sudden it wouldn't work. And so I started generalizing more and more and more. And as you do that, you realize you've got to do two things. One is you've got to get granular. You then have to have control over every little aspect because you can't take anything for granted. And then because of that, you have to have a gigantic amount of error checking. So not letting settings that are incompatible with Pro Tools ever happen. So if you select a certain format, other things automatically deselect themselves. If you're bouncing something where it already a file with that name exists, like, well, okay, what do you do? Like the point was I wanted to go do something else. So it renames the file, but then has to keep track of that name because if you're going to export a copy, like, it's just endless what comes up while you're doing it. And some of it I've learned since the thing actually got released out into the world, but most of it was just me constantly changing little bits about how I was working from one project to the next and realizing like, oh, hold on a second. If that dialogue comes up, I better dismiss it this way and know about it and blah, blah, blah. So it just grew out of my workflow trying to be generalized. And then some of the people who were beta testing for me and now, you know, people who are using it out in the wild. But yeah, it 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 is ballooned. Believe me, the, the little bounce script I wrote first was, I don't know, 200 lines of code or something like that. And the last time I looked at the app, which was right before it came out, and there's been a lot added since then, it was like 16,000 lines of code. And probably a third of that is just error checking and stuff like that. So yeah, it's gotten huge. Does it come with presets? Presets meaning, okay, this is the way I do things, meaning Andrew, but that might not be the workflow for other people. No, exactly. And this is, it's actually one of the coolest features and it got added after it came out for exactly that reason, because the way I work is not like the way anybody else works, but the way people work is repetitive. 
And even though we've taken away the pain of having to sit in front of the computer while it's bouncing the mixes, the pain of having to set them up over and over and over the same way was starting to bum people out. It's amazing what you get used to, you know, but dude, I'm saving you nine hours. Like, I don't care. I'm wasting 25 minutes right now. Yeah, yeah. And so there are now ways that you can actually build your own presets. So what you do is you set up one song to bounce and then you export all of the settings that are different between the mix passes. And then you can import those into, into a snapshot for any other session. And as long as the source names are the same and destination tracks, if you're placing mixes on tracks, as long as the things exist in that session that it would need to do that mix pass, it'll import them. So now you could, if you're very, very template based, you could set up an unlimited number of mix passes in literally seconds. You would just open up the session, say, take snapshot and say, great, bring in all my stuff and you'd be done. So you kind of make your own presets when you set up the first session. Can you take that preset and say, okay, in certain cases, I need Y instead of X and then modify it and have it become a new snapshot? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some things are easier to sort of batch change than others. Like, obviously, when you bring this stuff in, you're going to want to change the name of every single mix pass so that you do in a batch way. You just find and replace, and it changes all the bounce names for you. Then there are other things where you might have to, it just, it depends what it is you want to change. There's certain things that would be difficult, but there's some things where you basically are presented with this global set of options for the set of mix passes for that session. And then you have the things that will change between the mix passes, which is really just muting and soloing tracks or maybe changing playlists or turning an automation mode on and off because like you've got mute automation, but now you want to mute the thing. Those are the four things that are shared between, or not shared, but change between mix passes. So those things, if they're consistent, you can just keep bringing them into new sessions over and over and over and over. And it will solo and mute and change playlists of those tracks exactly how it should be. Then you can change the naming. If you need to do a different workflow, you could bring in a subset of them or something like that. But it just depends how much you want to change and what you want to change. And because the one thing, like I said before, I'm very careful about is I won't ever let you set up a mix pass that actually won't be able to bounce because then it's going to stop. And even though that one was illegal, what about the 30 it was going to do after that? The last thing you want to do is find out 20 minutes after you left, something was screwed up and now you got to start over in the morning and nothing's done. So it depends what you want to do. Who is this aimed at? It's aimed at me. (laughs) There's the working pro mixer. Yeah, for sure. I I think, I think basically that's, that's the target. It's people who do what I do. And then it's just, I, there are applications in post as well, though, you know, I don't think there are too many post guys who've really sort of taken it up, but it's, it could definitely work in post depending on the workflow. And then I think for the semi-pro, it just depends what you're doing. You know, if you are mixing an album every couple of months, you probably don't need it. Like it just isn't what you need, but there are a lot of people who are not doing major label stuff who still have to deliver things just like the people who are doing major label stuff because everybody wants stems now either for performance or for atmos like there's a reason you're going to need to do 25 mix passes and the depending on how you set up your template and how you mix it could be anybody who mixes might want it 
and there are there are different versions um, where there is a cheaper one that will just bounce one session at a time instead of opening and closing sessions and messaging you when it's done and things like that. So it could be that that's fine. You're mixing like one song at a time. You don't ever need to bounce 12 songs overnight. That's fine. So then there's a, a kind of scaled back version just for that. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. Price. Yeah, it's a terrible, terrible subject. It's a subscription. It's not a perpetual price. And most people hate that. And I know I used to hate that, but I've gotten used to the idea that software is a service. There is no software as a service unless there are never going to be any updates or you're going to charge a lot of money, like the same amount of money you charged initially for every single update, then it's a living, breathing thing. So the reason I went with a subscription was twofold. One, I could not find a price point that made sense because like music guys, we don't want to pay for anything. So like 39 bucks, that's too much money, whatever. But post guys, for what this does, like if, if you set this up and it cranked out all of your Netflix deliverables, which can take two days to, to finish once you're done mixing, if it can crank all those out overnight, you'd pay five grand for it. Like there are software packages for posts that do less than this that cost thousands and thousands of dollars. So first of all, impossible to find a price that made sense. And I didn't want to make a post-production edition because it's the same thing. I don't want to take features away from music people because the, you know, it doesn't really sustain prices like that. The other thing is that, um, and especially because I beta test Pro Tools, it's compatible with new versions of Pro Tools the day they come out. And that included back when they changed the bounce window completely, completely restructured it. I had already written the code to work with that before that came out. When they add file formats, I support them. When they change the way folders are given their names over accessibility, which is the way that SoundFlow actually talks to things, like all that stuff is worked out so that you can upgrade whenever you want. It's also, I check backwards compatibility. There's it's turned into pretty much a second full-time job keeping this up. So that said, there are two prices. One is uh, 19 bucks a month, which is the, um, the one that does one session at a time. It can be a thousand mix passes if you want to do that many, but it does one session at a time. And it doesn't text you or email you after every mix pass, which, you know, you don't need that, but it's actually kind of nice to have it. And then the pro one is 49 a month. And for both of these, if you pay annually, it's uh, you pay for 10 months. So it's, what is that? 8% yeah. off? I don't know. It's kind of standard. Like yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that's 49 a month and that's unlimited sessions at a time and it will message you. Um, and then as I think everybody who's actually gotten in and done the trial, there's a 30 day trial when you get it, that's full featured. If you post a problem, in the SoundFlow forums, you'll hear back from me usually within an hour because I never seem to sleep. And I've done Zooms with a ton of different people to figure out the problems. Like I desperately want to make this work for everybody. It's not like, man, I wrote some code that sort of kind of works and slapped my name on it. Or, you know, I had someone else write some code. I wrote pretty much every line of this other than the stuff I stole out of the SoundFlow forums after asking questions, you know, and getting help with things. And it, it's something that I will be keeping up to date constantly because I use it. So it's got to work. You know, it's funny about software subscriptions, and I think people are getting more and more used to it, but I've changed completely about it. And the reason why is 
outside of music, there's a, a couple of pieces of software that I use. One is a checkbook. Completely, totally useful. It's great. And it's updated quite a lot. But I've only paid the one price for it. And I got to the point where I was feeling guilty. It's like, I want you to stay in business because I want you to support this great piece of software. So please go subscription so I can help you do that. Now, it hasn't happened yet, but I expect at some point it will. But that actually made me think differently about the whole software subscription model. And look, I used to hate it. I actually put off getting SoundFlow for a year because it was a subscription. Yeah. And I'm like, ah, oh, forget it. I've got Keyboard Maestro. What do I need SoundFlow for? And then finally, a couple of people I really trust said, dude, those two things are not comparable. They're like, just get the trial and see. And within an hour, I signed up for the paid version. Like, I didn't want to miss it for a day at the end of my trial if I forgot to give them a credit card because it's that good and and I think, like you say, it's that they're that responsive. I mean, Christian, the the CEO and the main coder for Soundflow, he's on the forums as much as anybody, and giving people help and making sure everybody understands. Like, hey, this is how it's supposed to work. But no, when you're trying to do that, why don't you try doing it this way and writing sample scripts for people? And the community is amazing, but it's not just the users; it's the company itself. And then the users are all really helpful. I mean, I learned to use it by the forums that are part of the subscription. You can log into the forum and ask questions. And that's how I learned to do it. And now I've gotten to the point where I'm doing the same. And I answer questions all the time because it, it's such a great community. So yeah, it's the it's the engagement with the developers that make you feel like, okay, I understand why this is a subscription. Because if you think about, well, what would be the value of your checkbook program over the life of it? You never would have paid that all at once up front. Yeah. It yeah. wouldn't have been worth it at that point. But as a monthly thing, and look, a lot of the plugin companies have gone to it. And, you know, I, I love owning stuff. I love to just own it. I have so many CDs in the room here because I'm thinking like, man, what if the internet crashes? I'll still be able to listen to music. Yeah. Like it's, I am like that and I love to own things, but I really have turned the corner and understand that at this point, almost all software has to be a subscription. It's the only way these companies will ever stay in business. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. On another subject, actually, you sort of touched on it. I take it that the way you mix has evolved. Uh, yeah, I suppose. I mean, the, the big change, I'm trying to remember when we did our first like interview that, and then you used part of it in one of your books, that was still on the console, I'm sure, yeah. right? That yeah. was that long ago. I mean, obviously the C change was going in the box from the console and that allowed me to evolve what I do. And now every once in a while, it's kind of cool to only have one song to work on and to just focus like hell on it. But most of the time, I love having more than one thing to do. And I love to have the whole album to work on because you get all of the boring mix prep out of the way at once. Then it's like, okay, if it's a rock thing, you're working on the drums and you sort of discover something about the overheads. Like, oh, hold on a second. The left side is out of phase, but not really. But if I shift it this much and then you can immediately open up the other 10 songs and see if that fixes it or is better or worse or whatever on the other songs, instead of like, oh man, I better write that down. And you never write it down. 
And then you go to the next song. You're like, man, the overheads sound weird. What did I do? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so that whole process of being in the same headspace on all of the songs on a project at the same time, I absolutely love. I love the not making progress on a song or being frustrated on a song and just closing it. Like, it's fine for me not to work on that song anymore. And it's not like now I'm just going to sit in my chair and wait to be inspired. I'm just going to work on something else. And then there's also this really interesting thing where while you're prepping and you're kind of getting the session together, you haven't committed to the fact that you're actually mixing yet. You're still just screwing around. Just going to try some stuff. Like it doesn't matter if I really mess with this thing because I can always put it back when I actually start mixing. And like 90% of your mixing happens like that with this no pressure thing. And then when you say, all right, look, I actually have to get to the point where I can send these mixes. There's so little left to do and sometimes nothing left to do that it's actually really fun to open things up that are very far advanced. And you might have done some really crazy stuff and just go, no, I got to undo that and let me do this normally or whatever it is. But I love having the process sort of take the pressure off me for most of the time I'm working. I saw somewhere a quote from you saying that you're using less parallel compression these days. I am. And this is, this is another example of, you know, what you do, the things that are easy. My template used to have all my parallel compressors in it. And the way I use pro tools is when I make a new send, it defaults to zero and follow main pan so that I'm just taking a copy of whatever's going on in that track, sending it full level into whatever the parallel thing is. So I'm just assigning sends to the parallel stuff. To change how much parallel stuff there was, was a pain. I either had to turn the sends up and down, or I had to go find the return of it and turn that up and down. And I didn't, it just, it was all kind of tweaked in my template that it worked. And then there was one project I was working on where it just didn't work. This needed to sound, I mean, for lack of a better word, it needed to sound older. It needed to sound like a more of a seventies thing. And you can't do that with a bunch of parallel compression. It just absolutely doesn't work. But when I took it out completely, like, well, no, now I'm missing the stuff I like. So I'm like, all right, just stop mixing for 10 minutes and go put a bunch of groups and VCAs into your template that allow you to turn things up and down in chunks really, really easily. And as soon as I did that, I started turning it down all the time. And now something that when there were no VCAs was technically at zero usually is like minus 12, minus 17. And that's all the returns of all of my parallel compression. And there are mixes where I just turn it off completely. So yeah, I don't know what that's about. And you get used to the sound. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there are also, there are things like if you force yourself to level match, which is really difficult with parallel compression, Yeah, you know, it's, it's hard. You can't just level match. You have to say, it's like it's a monitor level match. So you've got to have like two preset levels for a master fader that you change when you bring the stuff in and out. And But when you actually do it, it's not making as big a difference as you think. It definitely changes things, but it is just louder and nothing's better than louder. Yeah. So when I started feeling sort of uneasy about getting rid of it because I'd relied on it so much. That's when I spent time level matching to just prove it to myself. Like, no, it's not actually that different. So if I really want to mash the limiter or something like that, just turn all the tracks up. You don't have to do it with parallel stuff. 
And then what you get back from that is the ability to get rid of the artifacts of the parallel compression, which is, you know, giving individual things more space than they get when you have parallel stuff. And that's been great. And, you know, some albums still get a ton of it. Some albums just want to be loud and they want to be smashed up, but other records don't. And I don't use it. Do you use it in Atmos? Uh, I don't because I'm mixing from stems in Atmos. Even if it's uh, something that I mixed in stereo, I will go back to the stereo mix and make stems. So the sonic decisions are made. So if I'm doing catalog stuff where you have a released stereo version already, then I've got to match the mastering as well as the mixing. And sometimes for that, I will have to use some parallel stuff. But for the most part, no, I'm using spatial stuff, reverbs, delays, and panning. Lots and lots of panning. I mean, you can't say enough about what panning does. It seems like a really stupid and obvious thing to say. Like, well, of course, you're mixing on more speakers. You would pan it. But even when you're mixing in stereo, the difference between a guitar here and here can completely change the way it works with the vocal and the other guitars and whether you can hear the hi-hat and like all that stuff. And to keep that in mind when you've got this bigger soundscape is great. So the Atmos mixing is much more about trying to make things feel like they feel when you've got 5,000 things all going down a stereo pipe when you start to split things out and really understanding what can go on its own and what really relies on interacting with something else and not splitting that stuff out. And I think to me, that's the biggest part of the Atmos mixing is figuring out how do I make this really fun without destroying the groove or the song or the background vocal arrangement or whatever else is going on. Let's go there for a second, Andrew. It's different if you have a catalog piece and you're trying to make it close to the stereo, the sonics of the stereo. But if it's something that you're doing from scratch, the difference in space that you have basically means that a lot of things that you normally do, compression, EQ, that you needed to separate things, now you need less of it. How do you approach that? Well, to be honest, there are very, very few Atmos mixes that are done from scratch. It just doesn't happen because even on a project that's being done like right now, you do the stereo mix first, get it approved, get everybody happy with it, and then you do the Atmos mix. It's always the second step of the process. So I think the biggest thing for that is artist engagement. If you can't get the artist on board with it, then really you're just trying to make a more immersive version of the stereo mix. If you can get the artist in the room to sort of understand what some of the possibilities are, then I think that's when you end up going nuts. Because like, well, I don't want the lead vocal in the front. Like, really? Okay. And you can go there. But if you go there on your own as an Atmos mixer and then you send that out for approval, it's unlikely it's going to happen. Yeah. It just, it's too jarring and shocking. So a huge part of it is the actual artist education and involvement in the process. But still, 90% of the time, there is some adherence to the stereo version because it existed first. I've heard that over and over from mixers that the education part is critical to get the artist on board because otherwise... Look, I've got a two-page document I send just for, here's how to listen to the mixes. 
Wow. One page is the creative side. One page is the technical side. Like, here's what I'm giving you. Here's how you can hear it. Because without that, I mean, it's just they're lost. They're completely lost. It's difficult. It's a really difficult thing to do. Last question, Andrew. So what's the best advice that you would have for someone that was just entering the Atmos sphere? The, well, I mean, the first thing is you've got to get your room set up. So it makes sense to you. I'm not going to say you have to have Dolby come measure your room and things, but unless you're really, really good at adapting to things in a room and sort of intuitively knowing what to do when something sounds weird coming out of speakers, you've got to set up the room in terms of time aligning. You've got to find your mix position and you've got to go through the process of setting up delays to the nearer speakers so that it matches what's coming to you from the speakers that are furthest away, because otherwise you're just not hearing what other people are going to hear. So that's the first thing. You've got to get your room set up in a way that will translate. Again, what that means could mean you duct tape some speakers to a brick in the back of the room. That's like why it would be a brick. I don't know, but you know, whatever, like you staple stuff. It doesn't matter what you do if it will translate exactly the same way if you're mixing in stereo. So you've got to have a room that will translate. And then I think you've got to do a lot of listening too. You've got to find out what works for you in other people's Atmos mixes, because there's so much possibility of how you might do things that it's not going to occur to you right away. You need to actually do some exploration. I mean, and, you know, like an obvious place to start is Greg Penny's mix of Rocketman. That's like everybody's, it's the perfect introduction because you start off with everything on the front wall and then something happens in the back and then something happens above and you can kind of acclimate yourself to what could happen. And even if for some reason you don't like that mix, you'll get an idea of what you can do and what you can't do. And I think you've got to spend time in headphones. You've got to understand what's, what it's going to sound like in headphones. And that's really easy to do if you're working with the renderer and pro tools you can have the binaural just come out and listen on headphones if you're working in logic uh as of now you can have either the dolby binaural or the apple spatial in headphones and if you've got airpods max you can put them on and actually monitor logic in that with the head tracking so there are lots of different ways you can monitor this stuff but you've got to do it and i think the main thing is is you really have to understand what you're doing because it's tricky. It's like everybody's gotten really good at mixing in stereo. It's easy. Get a laptop, whatever, mix, get some speakers, set them up, headphones, who cares? Now, all of a sudden, you've got this new mix format, which is pretty technical. And you have to understand what's going on. What are objects? What's the difference between objects in a bed? How can you make your own bed that has more channels if you want to treat things? What does it mean to put a limiter across a 712 bus? What is it? Is it combining everything so it's going to compress all the channels based on each channel or is it multi-mono like what's the separation in the detector circuit all this stuff that we can kind of go nah whatever it doesn't matter it sounds good it doesn't sound good you actually kind of have to know again so i think mixing's become something where you got to do a little more homework than you've had to do in the last 10 years you can find out more about andrew and bounce factory at bouncefactory.net that's Bounce Factory, B-O-U-N-C-E, factory, all one word, dot net. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. 
That's bobbyosinski.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.